1942, February 1942, General Douglas MacArthur was forced to flee from Manila, the capital of the Philippines. He had been commander of the U.S. Army forces there, but Imperial Japan invaded the Philippines just hours after they destroyed Pearl Harbor. You all know that story. And there was a fight for a few months, but he was unable to repel the advances. They're getting pushed back farther and farther. President Roosevelt ordered MacArthur to withdraw to Australia. And when he arrived there in the city of Melbourne, he gave his famous statement in which he said, I shall return. Maybe you've heard that story before. And throughout the rest of the war in the Pacific, as the fleets engaged and they began that island hopping campaign, MacArthur became rather dogged and stubborn in his insistence that they go to the Philippines first. Everybody was saying, no, we should bypass the Philippines and go straight for Japan. We should start in China and go from there. But he had a lot of public clout. He had a lot of important friends, and he was able to get them to go to the Philippines first. On October 20th, 1944, they landed on Leyte Island in the Philippines, and he announced, I have returned. He said, when he left, I shall return, and when he came back, I have returned. And he was instrumental in the liberation of Manila, transitioning the Filipino government to full independence after the war. And while Paul's story was perhaps less dramatic than that, he found himself in a very similar situation, that they had been driven out when they didn't want to be driven out. They wanted to stay with the people they loved and that they were supposed to be helping, and that they were dogged in their insistence and their determination to go back. And this is what we read about in this chapter. Paul is going to explain, and Silas and Timothy, our authors, are going to explain the attitude that they had, the steps they were taking, not only to get back, but also the steps they were taking to ensure the spiritual health and salvation of the Christians that were there. Because as you're going to see, Paul and Timothy and Silas were concerned that because they had been driven out so quickly that the church might have been disheartened. Or maybe had begun to think poorly of the apostles, that they stuck around until it got hard and then they left. Or maybe that their persecution had driven them away from the Lord. They'd become disillusioned and said, if this is what it means to follow Jesus, I don't want anything to do with it. And in the same way, as we'll see, we face suffering too. Whether that's persecution, whether that's sickness or financial hardship, we face the same kind of suffering that the Thessalonians faced because we face the same temptations in suffering that the Thessalonians faced. We're waiting for our king to return for us. And we should not lose heart, but we've got to, as the word says, rejoice as we share his sufferings. Because as we suffer, if we can suffer as we're going to talk about in Christ, it works about the Christ life in us. It makes us more like Jesus. Or it drives us farther away from the Lord. And as we're going to read today, this is not a solo endeavor. <laughs> we are not required to work alone as Christians and figure ourselves out and then join the church. It's what the church is for. And you're going to see the love and the fellowship that Paul and Silas and Timothy and the Thessalonian church had together. Because they say, if we've got you and you've got us, we can handle this. That's why the Lord set up the church, and that's how we ought to be for one another. So why don't we read the first five verses here of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. You should underline that. 
For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. So he starts out this chapter with the word therefore, which is, of course, a callback. You should always say, what is the therefore, therefore? And we saw at the end of the previous chapter that they had expressed their desire to return to Thessalonica. We know the story by now. They had been run out of town by the Jews there who had stirred up a mob. They were jealous of Paul and Silas, and they ran them out of town to Berea. Then they came to Berea and ran them out of town there until Paul went down to Athens and then eventually Corinth. If you look back in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, just to remind you, he said, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person but not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So the last thing they had said was, we wanted to come. We want to be there so bad we can't hardly stand that Satan has kept us from you. Then they have a little parenthetical statement at the end of the chapter. And he comes back and saying, anyway, like I was saying, when we could bear it no longer. And he starts to explain what happened after they left. They were driven to Berea. Paul went to Athens. You can read the story in Acts chapter 17. And according to Acts alone, if you were to just read that passage, it, it seems to say that Paul went to Athens waited there, didn't see anybody, so then he went down to Corinth until finally Silas and Timothy met him there. But if you read this passage, the timeline gets a little confused, so let's try to work this out if we can. It says that Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea and Paul went to Athens in Acts. But here it says, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone and we sent Timothy. Now, if we were to just read this passage, we'd think Paul and Silas went to Athens and sent Timothy away. But we know from Acts that Paul was alone in Athens. So who is we <laughs> and what does alone mean here? Because that word alone is actually monos, which is where we get words like monosyllable. It means one, right? Mono and stereo, one channel, two channels. And it seems kind of odd that Paul would refer to two people as being mono. You know what I mean? So it's possible a couple things that Paul went to Athens alone first. Silas and Timothy came to see him at some point, which Acts doesn't record. And then Silas went back maybe to Berea, and Timothy went up to Thessalonica. But then in Acts 18, it says Paul didn't see them until Corinth. So it's really not quite clear. It's one of those things, there's a couple ways you could work it out. We're not quite sure. It could just be that when Paul says, we were willing to be left alone, that it was a group decision, but he was the only one being left alone. Does that make sense to you? Like We all decided, but it was really just me. But uh, it could have been there was another visit in there that neither passage lays out clearly. It's just interesting to try and work those things out and try to understand our scriptures a little better. But what we do see in this passage and in Acts, in the end, Paul went to Athens and then eventually to Corinth. Silas probably went back to Berea because we know he went back to Macedonia, but he didn't go to Thessalonica. And we see that Timothy was sent back. So the, the team was split up, which is interesting and kind of cool because Timothy's first solo mission was this one. Now, we read about Timothy in the book of Acts. He was from Lystra, which was in Galatia. And it says that he was well spoken of by all the churches there. His mother and grandmother were Jewish. He had a Greek father. And Paul took him under his wing almost as his son and took him with him on all his journeys. And this was the first journey that he went on. So 
This is the first time Timothy that we know of is being sent on a mission by himself. It's pretty cool. Yet Paul didn't just bring Timothy along to carry the stuff, but he intended to raise Timothy up to be a minister of the gospel. This is an important lesson that we'll just go by quickly, but young folks in the church are not just to be there until they're old enough to serve. If they don't start serving immediately and start learning how to do this right away, then it's never going to happen. You know, so we should always have that mentality that we're bringing people alongside and giving them real chances to actually step out and even to fail. Because if you don't get the chance to fail, you're not going to get the chance to succeed either, right? But we know later on, 1 Corinthians 4 tells us that Timothy would be sent to Corinth for Paul. Philippians 2.19 tells us that Paul would send Timothy to Philippi while he was in prison. And ultimately, 1 and 2 Timothy are letters written to him when he was sent to Ephesus to take over the church there. And Timothy would go on to raise up other men and be a martyr for the Lord. He's called here God's co-worker. That word for co-worker is synergos. You ever have a corporate meeting where they want to talk about synergy? That's this word here, synergos. Syn or soon in Greek means with or together, and ergos means work, like energy. So synergos means to work together. I've been in those meetings. I know that they're exhausting, but it's still a good word when it's here in Scripture. He's a co-worker. And look what he says, a co-worker of who? Of God. Isn't that cool? Not just a co-worker of Paul and Silas, but of God himself. That's what it means to be in the service of the Lord. You are partnering with God to accomplish his purposes. So this is when they were finally able to reestablish their presence in Thessalonica. Maybe because Timothy was less visible. You know, he wasn't the preacher. He wasn't the guy out in front. Maybe the city officials wouldn't recognize him. Or maybe the Jews wouldn't take him as seriously. He also was half Greek and half Jew. So maybe he was able to blend in a little better. Whatever the case, he was the one they sent off to Thessalonica. So they're wondering, they're trying to get back, it's not working out. So finally, Timothy, you go. Just try to get there any way you can. And it says he sent him to do what in verse 2? To establish and exhort you in your faith. So to check on them. He's to strengthen them spiritually. This is his first pastoral mission. To go and strengthen them in the faith. And the reason being, verse 3, that no one be moved by these afflictions. We've already read and we know that the Thessalonian church had been under persecution. And they're concerned because they've got no pastor. They've got no shepherd to look after them. And they're having to go through all this persecution. So Timothy, get up there and strengthen them, exhort them. Be there to help them as they go through their persecutions. Reminds me of when the Romans would persecute the early church. There was a desert monk named Anthony who lived out in the desert by himself and was kind of the first guy to really get out on, on his own, even though the people loved him and he wrote some things. But when the church began to get persecuted, he left the desert and goes into the cities and begins to preach and strengthen all the Christians to endure suffering. And the Romans were so afraid of this guy because of all the stories they've heard of him of the miracles he did and the demons he cast out that they wouldn't arrest him and they wouldn't touch him. So he'd be there in the courtroom or there when the Christians getting ready to be killed, strengthening them while they're being persecuted. It's a pretty cool thing, similar to what they're asking Timothy to do here. Because they're thinking, maybe they're afraid, or maybe they think they did something wrong. We're going to see later on that the Thessalonians kind of have that attitude that maybe we did something wrong. We shouldn't be suffering if we're God's people, right? And that attitude still exists today, doesn't it? Well, if God was real, bad things wouldn't happen. If I'm God's child, bad things shouldn't happen to me. And if something bad happened, it must be my fault. 
But as Paul says here, as he told the churches in Galatia back in Acts 14, he says, we are destined for this. For what? For affliction. Suffering. Especially the suffering of persecution. That ought to take a load off your mind. You know, if you've ever started to think, if I do everything right, I'll never have any trouble in life. Well, that's just not true. So you can stop worrying about it now. You are destined for suffering. If you're a Christian, you're destined for this. Life is hard. The entire Bible makes this clear. Read through the Old Testament. The whole book of Job is examining this question. Because all the guys come to Job and they say, Job, you must have done something wrong or you wouldn't be suffering. Meanwhile, Job knows and we know that no, he hadn't done anything wrong. And Job is trying to figure this out. And there's this whole back and forth. It's a beautiful book. And at the end, God just shows up and says, I'm not telling you what happened. You just have to trust me. That's the lesson for all of us. Bad things happen. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. Even people who love Jesus Christ with all their heart are going to suffer. So you should not expect that following Jesus is somehow a ticket out of suffering. I remember I went to a big Christian event one time, and this guy went up to evangelize. But all he really said was, Jesus is going to make your life so much better. And he told all these stories of these really sad situations of people who had been abused and people who had lost everything. And then they came to Jesus and it felt so much better. But he never once talked about sin. He never once talked about repentance or heaven or hell or any of that. So I'm sure he believed those things. But he didn't present that to anybody. And if you had never heard any of this stuff, all you would think is, well, if you've got a bad life, Jesus will give you a good life. But that's not what it says. What does he say? We are destined for affliction. Life is hard, and if you're a Christian, you should only expect it to be harder. Now, does that mean that there are no advantages to being in Christ when we suffer? Of course not. You've got the family of Christ there to support you. You've got the Holy Spirit within you to guide you. The Lord answers prayers, and sometimes God calms those storms for his people. So we don't want to overstate the case and overcorrect. Where we don't want to be prosperity teachers to where we get some really mean suffering is, is exactly what we deserve and God's never going to help you. That's not true either. But they needed to be reminded of that. He's like, hey, you go and tell them, yes, we're destined for suffering, but you've got Christ and he's there to walk through it with you. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. So every time you pull up Twitter and you see people insulting Christians and making fun of believers, you just say, oh, I must be blessed. Blessed am I, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Peter says, don't think it's strange. I don't understand, Peter. I'm suffering and I'm a Christian. He goes, that's the way it goes, man. You're sharing Christ's sufferings. And Paul says it here, you're destined for this. They would tell the Galatian churches, it is only through suffering that we may enter the kingdom of God. We share Christ's sufferings. I want to talk about that phrase a little bit. That suffering indicates that the Spirit of God is upon us. Well, we know that to be a Christian means to walk in imitation of Christ. We want to be more like Jesus. And we all know, don't we, where Christ ended up. 
<laughs> Christ's life ended on a cross. But a lot of times you think, Jesus, I would really like that middle part of your life when everyone loved you. Instead of saying, Lord, I want everything. I want the Garden of Gethsemane. I want the, the floggings and the beatings, Lord. I want the ignoble death, Lord. We don't say, I don't, I don't think I want that part. <laughs> but if we're going to walk with Christ, of necessity, it means we must suffer as he did. This does not mean that you suffer for your sins. This is, a, this is kind of a, more of the high church denominations, the Catholic and the Anglican denominations especially. They say, now what happens is God saves you. And what happens is you've got to burn off the penalty for all the stuff you'd already done. Now, that's not what the Bible says. Jesus Christ, it says, suffered once for all for sins. So what does this mean, to share Christ's sufferings? Well, Christ dying on the cross, as Paul makes clear in Romans 6, he was dying to the old life and rising up on the third day to that glorious new life that he lives at his Father's right hand. And it's the same thing for us. Your sufferings work to bring about the character of Christ in you. That old man, that old woman dies on the cross. And even pieces of it can die. You can look back at different trials in your life, can't you? And say, that's when I finally learned this. That's when I finally got over that. You can even look at this in history. Like, this big cataclysmic event taught us this. The Civil War was finally that big cataclysm that broke our back. Okay, we're not doing slavery anymore. The Holocaust finally taught us all, okay, anti-Semitism is a very, very bad thing. In the same way, your personal life, you've got similar things. Where something breaks you so hard that you're like, I'm leaving all that behind. I can't be the same person I was after going through that. Isn't that the case? You ever know somebody that lost somebody in their life very dear to them, like a parent or maybe a spouse, and... You know, they, they've come out the other side. They're still walking with Christ, but they're, they're just different. You know what I mean? Maybe they've got a new sobriety about them. They're, they don't laugh as easily as they used to. Or maybe they work harder than they used to. And that, that changes us. And here's the thing. You're going to suffer no matter what. So you can either suffer in Christ or you can suffer apart from Christ. But if you suffer in Christ, it works out the nature of Christ in you. We're all looking forward to that resurrection life. A lot of songs being written now about resurrection power. I kind of like that. It's a cool idea that we have the power that raised Jesus from the dead at work within us. It's totally biblical. But we've got to remember that the resurrection came after the what? The cross, the death, going down into the ground. So every time you suffer, your old self is hanging on that cross. Bible says to put to death the old man, dying so that the newness of life may be formed in you. That's what suffering means for a Christian. That as you go through pain, it's purifying you. It's a fire that refines the gold and all the dross rises to the top and you skim it off and now it's just that much more pure. This is why, as we're going to read later in James chapter 1, James will tell us, count it all joy when you go through various trials. And I like that he says various trials. You know why? Because folks will say, all this suffering stuff only applies to persecution. Any other kind of suffering should never happen for a Christian. But James says various kinds of trials. All sorts of trials. Every kind of pain. Paul in Colossians 1.24 talks of filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That's not saying that Jesus didn't die enough. It's saying that the suffering in me accomplishes what Christ's suffering was supposed to accomplish for me. Does that make sense to you? This is an important thing to know. 
Some early church fathers, when martyrdom was a sure thing, I mean, there are a couple hundred years in the church where you were going to be killed for your faith. It was just a matter of time. And so they would talk about your coming martyrdom as that final passage. Like that's when you will finally go through that last purification and enter into the kingdom of heaven just like Jesus did. And that's why guys like Ignatius could write about the excitement that they felt when they were being brought to Rome when they were going to get thrown to the wild beasts. We don't really have that because that's not our lot in life. But the good news is you do not have to suffer persecution in order to be saved. You can go through normal, we might call them, normal kinds of suffering and allow them to work out the same kind of transformation in you that persecution should. You might not be suffering for Christ, but you can be suffering in Christ if you allow the hardships of your life to sanctify you. So rather than something to be avoided, suffering, trials, pain, it's something to be joyful for. Even though we, in in our day and age, especially as related to that physical agony, we're not as very familiar with it. You know, we, we have mental problems and we have financial hardships and it's still just as hard losing somebody, whether you're rich or poor or around the world, right? But we don't experience the same kind of pain that you read about throughout history. So we need to make sure that when we do encounter it, it does not become a strange thing to us, but it becomes a joyful thing to us. Oh no, persecution's on the rise. Well, maybe we're the generation that is finally worthy to suffer for Jesus Christ's name. That's a totally different perspective on persecution, isn't it? Oh, finally, we're worthy. You read through, uh, we did the Reformation study a few weeks ago. Martin Luther, when all his buddies were being burned at the stake, he would write, like, maybe I'm just not worthy to suffer a death like that. Maybe they're more worthy than I am because God saw fit to allow them to suffer and not me. Now, you don't want to put a trip on yourself and get kind of weird and backwards about it, but in the same way, rejoice when you encounter various trials. The apostles were beaten with rods and they walked away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer like Jesus suffered. We're suffering just like Jesus did. And I mean, they were in the same place with the same people, maybe even the same guards beating them. But our suffering, if we suffer in Christ, will work out what the Lord intends. It's an important doctrine for us to reclaim. Because if we are unwilling to suffer, whether for Christ or in Christ, there are dire consequences for that. Romans 8 puts it this way. Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And all God's people said, amen, hallelujah, heirs with Christ. But he finishes by saying, provided, meaning if, we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And saying, yes, you are heirs of God. If you allow the pain of life to work out the nature of Christ in you. If you run away from persecution, if every time you go through a trial, you pitch a little hissy fit and it drives you farther and farther away from Christ, Paul looks at you and says, what kind of salvation do you call that? Because Christ in you means a willingness to suffer because Christ was willing to suffer. His whole life was aiming for the cross. And if every time you get anything that even smells like a cross, you run the other way, then Paul's like, you call yourself an heir of Christ? This is the temptation that they sent Timothy to head off. You see it in verse 5? It says, for this reason we could bear it no longer. I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain the tempter. This is another personal reference to the devil here, the tempter. 
God wants to use your pain. Isn't that good news? That your pain, God can use it to refine you and shape you into the person he wants you to be. You know, you've, you've got some besetting sin that you just can't get over, and then you go through some terrible tragedy, and you come out the other side, and you left that sin far behind. Man, it was well worth it. But guess what? God wants to use your pain, but so does your enemy. So does the devil. And I hope you've seen a couple times in this passage, he's talked about Satan hindered us from coming to you, that the tempter was tempting you. We believe in a personal, real devil. If you don't believe in that, you are outside of what Scripture teaches. And it's also, man, if you could convince your enemies that you don't even exist. That's why the assassins always, in all those movies, they try to be stealthy and they hide in the shadows. And everyone's wondering, where is he? Where is it coming from? It's like Spider-Man, you know, when no one can find him. It's, the devil's like that. Because he doesn't want anyone to see him. He doesn't want anyone to recognize what he's doing. But he's there. Satan wants to use your pain as an excuse to drive you away from Jesus Christ. He wants to use your pain to do the opposite work in you. Christ can use your suffering to lead to a glorious resurrection. Satan wants to use your suffering to drag you down to the grave and leave you there. You've got to recognize you're being fought over every day. Every time you suffer, you are being fought over. You've got one person that wants to tug you this way and one person that wants to tug you that way. The spirit wars against the flesh, the Bible says. You've got to recognize that. You've got to look at it as not just how am I going to do this, but who am I going to serve? Am I going to serve Jesus Christ or am I going to serve Satan? Now most of us, if... <laughs> If you're, if you're like me, you even see a movie that hints at some sort of weird, demonic, satanic thing. You're like, uh-uh, nope, walk the other way. No, thank you. You find out about somebody that's into some kind of weird, magical stuff. It's like, you, you stay over there. You know, We would never even think of serving Satan. But in our trials and our suffering, when we allow those things to batter us and cause us to curse God and rebel and walk away from Jesus Christ, you are serving Satan. You're serving his purposes. You've not become a Satanist, but you are giving in to his will for your life. God's got a plan for your life, but so does your enemy. And you don't want that plan. This is why I think, while of course it's true in certain senses, but in a sense it's wrong to talk about just enduring or going through trials. Because it's not just that. It's not just that we go through things, but that those things are battlegrounds. You know, an army is not going through something <laughs> when they go to war. When you line up against the enemy, it's not like, well, we just, we've got to get through this. Just part of life. No, you're there on purpose to fight for something. That's what a trial is. That's what temptation is. You've got the enemy and you've got your Lord fighting for you. If we train ourselves just to go through trials, just to let the pain hit us and then wallow in it. Isn't that kind of what we do? Something bad happens, pow! Now I'm going to milk this trial for all the self-pity and all the excuses to sin that I can drum up. We let it rock us and we use it as an excuse to give up. This is the thing that, that I worry about is that sometimes we know we ought to do the right thing but we kind of wish we could do the wrong thing. So when we get half a chance, meaning somebody breaks our heart or somebody gets real sick or you lose your job, we use that as an excuse to go off the other way. And you talk to people like this. Well, I used to follow Jesus, but then my marriage fell apart and my, my house burned down and now I just don't anymore. It's like, well, why? You, you knew you were destined for suffering. 
Maybe they didn't, but they should have known. You're destined for suffering. You, you could have let Christ form that in you. But instead, you choose it as an opportunity to go after the flesh. It's not a good excuse. We need to hear this now. This was the temptation that Timothy was sent to warn them about. That pain is a good excuse to sin or to deny Christ or to backslide. I'll tell you today, it is not a good excuse. And it will not fly when you stand before Jesus. And if you've been living that way, you've got to repent. If you've let 2020 this big boogeyman that we've let stand over our lives, slap you around and drive you farther from Christ, and now you've let all that pain make you bitter, and you've let it cause you to hate the people around you, and you're not reading your Bible like you should, and your language has just gotten foul and all that, and you say, well, you know, it's 2020. That's not a good excuse. Is that, is that all that you're made of? Is that all that Christ has accomplished in you? I should hope not. Or when people come in and, and they, they go online and they, they'll put some horrible thing about people and they're ranting and raving and cursing and, you know, you call them, what, what are you doing? I'm sorry, man, I was just angry. Well, so what? Well, I was angry. Well, that's not an excuse. That's something you have to teach your little kids. You know, you're upset, you're tired, you, whatever, you're hungry. That doesn't mean you get an opportunity to treat people poorly. You know, and, and that's how we, we do that for each other. Oh, I understand. Or we say, hey, you can't talk like that. And there's always that one friend. Don't talk to her that way. You don't know what she's gone through. You can't judge her until, oh, yes, I can. Because I know what the word of God has said. And we do each other no favors when we allow each other to do that. Maybe some of y'all need to hear that today because I didn't plan to talk about it. <laughs> but when you give people an excuse to sin because they've been through something, everybody's been through something. Everybody's walked through something. It's because some of us don't send up fireworks and let the whole world know. That's not a good excuse. We're way too over-psychologized, aren't we? I'll tell you, it's, it's tough. When someone has been, and there's a legitimate place for this, so I'm not knocking the whole deal, but just bear with me. When somebody has given themselves a label or has been handed a label by a doctor or told you have a disorder, that's why you act this way, now you have just liberated somebody to act however they want. I had a hard time dealing with, with kids in the high school group especially when I was teaching that ministry because there were kids that would come in and they've been to five or six counselors. They've been given six or seven different labels and four or five different medications. You can't talk to that kid because you say, you've got to control yourself. Actually, I can't control myself. Here's what the doctor said. You can't talk to her that way. I can't help the way I talk. That's what the doctor said. I wasn't on my medicine today. I forgot that. And now you've got all these excuses of why you don't have to obey Jesus Christ. And the world will say that too. Well, she's got a disorder. Well, he's mentally ill. You know what? I know a miracle-working God who changes people and casts out demons and opens the eyes of the blind and uses pain not just as something to endure, but as something that builds us up. You ever say that crazy thing when you're giving your testimony? That was the hardest time of my life, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. That makes no sense. That doesn't make any sense. You're like, are you kidding me? You tell me you wouldn't do it any differently? Yes, I wouldn't, because what came out of my life, what Jesus did in my life, how my attitude has been sharpened and changed through that, I wouldn't give that up. Amen. James 1, verses 2 through 4. Let's read it finally. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That means every kind of trial. Count it joy, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
Suffering as a Christian. We say, well, it's not just a negative thing. You're right, it's not negative, but it's more than that. It can be a positive thing. When we suffer, you can rejoice. Like, okay, this is exactly what I need. Kind of like those crazy people that learn to love those miserable workouts they do at the gym. You look at them, you're like, oh, you look like you're miserable. You're in pain and you're grunting and you're groaning and you drop the thing and you're cursing at stuff and kicking things. You get right back over and you pick it up again. It's like, wow, well, it's going to make me stronger. It's going to make me ready for that thing I want to do. We can start to look at suffering that way, that it doesn't beat us down, but in fact, it builds us up. I adjure you today not to give in to that temptation, just to wallow in it and let it rock over you and let it wreck all the work that Christ has done in your life. Where does pain have a claim on your life? It's time to leave that on the cross, you guys. Come out of that grave. We sing the songs, I ran out of that grave. I've been given a new life in Christ. Well, leave that stuff behind then. Leave behind the old man and walk out into the new one. Paul and Silas had sent Timothy to see if the Thessalonians had fallen into that. And you've got to examine yourself today too to say if you're not guilty of the same thing. Let's read verse 6 now, down to verse 10. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Verse 6, if you're taking notes, is the reason why they wrote 1 Thessalonians. Timothy had returned. They sent him off on his secret mission. He came back. And he says he brought the good news. That word is evangelizomai. It's where we get the word evangelize from. He brought us good news that, hey, they're standing firm. We already saw in these first two chapters these qualities that made Paul sure that their faith was genuine. And so this letter is the overflow of their joy. They're so worried about them. And Timothy goes up and says, no, man, they're walking right that suffering is bringing about the character of Christ in them, even with that little knowledge they had. And they're so happy. You say, Timothy, you're going to hop right back on that boat. Let's just write us a letter real quick. He says, now we live if you are standing fast. They were comforted in their own distress, in their own affliction. They were comforted by that. And I love verse 9. Can we read it again? What thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? Because you make me so happy, I could never repay God for bringing you into my life. Isn't that cool? Their joyful joy, and they're praying most earnestly night and day to be reunited. It's hundreds of miles separating them. No instant communication. It's like what 3 John 4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So the apostles have been reunited in Corinth. They've received Timothy's good report. And so they sit down to write the letter that we are reading here this morning. And you see this repeatedly in this book, this overflow of love that they had for the church there. And it ought to be an example for us. Friends can make all the difference in suffering and affliction. All of us have to go through life with all of its attendant trouble. But going through that alone just adds another layer of terror, doesn't it? It's one thing to go through pain. It's another thing to go through pain alone. It's one thing to go through a pandemic. It's another thing to go through it alone. 
It's one thing to go through the loss of a family member. It's another thing to have to go through it by yourself. And to that end, God has given us the church. Isn't it funny how the world seems to be constantly trying to recreate the church? We don't want that. We don't need it. It's all bigoted and it's all trying to make us live the way we want to live. And now they're out there saying, you know, being by yourself so much isn't a good thing. You need to find a way to cultivate community in your life. And you know, it takes a village to raise a child. You need some good people around you. And you need a common shared goal and shared idea. And it's like you're, you're rebuilding the church. You're going back and discovering all these things that Jesus already told us. Say, oh, don't be alone. Don't be isolated. It's like, well, we have church. That's what the church is for. We have friends to go through hard times with, among other things. Which is why we ought to be cultivating love in our midst. You see the love that they had for one another? They were so rejoicing. Hey, I'm going through trials too. But I heard that you're going through trials well. So you know what? I'm okay. I'm going to keep going. If you do not have those kinds of connections here, you need them to love each other and to connect with other people who love you. Church is not your weekly self-help seminar. All right? I hope you all know that by now. But this is not, I'm going to, I've got to improve myself. I need a little religion in my life. I need a little intellectual stimulation. So I'm going to go off to church and, you know, hopefully it'll be done in time for me to go home and watch the game. No one watches NFL around here anyway, so I don't know what that example is all about. But that's not what church is for. Church is not about you coming in and getting what you need. Now listen, do we get what we need? Absolutely. But it's your opportunity to love those around you who may very well be suffering worse than you are. I'll never forget this. There is a woman who came out with my parents from California when they planted the church. Her name is Ave Keneally, wonderful woman. And she came to the prayer meeting one time and just we were, we were praying at the church. I was very young at that point and she just started weeping and breaking down, which was nothing special if you know Ave. She cried every time she prayed and it was a joke and she laughed about it too. But she says, Lord, forgive me because I came to church today hoping somebody would come and talk to me and ask me how I'm doing because I'm going through a rough time. And I never once considered that there are other people that needed me to do that for them. Please forgive me. That made an impression on me. Because it's like, this is her. She's a godly woman. Nobody in a million years would ever fault her for coming in, needing a little help one Sunday. Say, hey, I'm usually the one taking care of everybody. I need to be taken care of today myself. But she said, no, that's not it. I need to be loving everybody around me. That's the case. If everyone does that, nobody will be left out. Amen? If we all had that attitude for each other, you don't need to worry about yourself. That's how marriage works too. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. There you go. <laughs> what are we worried? Well, I'll start when he... No, 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 no. You do the other thing first. Romans 12.10 says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. You want to compete in church? Churches compete for all kinds of things. How about you compete in saying, Who can show the most honor to somebody else? Well, I can't help the way I feel. Nonsense. Feelings can be trained into you by doing what is right and asking the Holy Spirit to help. You ever tell your dad, he says, go mow the lawn. I don't feel like it. Does your dad care if you feel like it or not? Get out there and do it because I said so. And then people with no children like to say things like, you should never just say because I said so. It's like, well, sometimes you have to say because I said so. 
And that's good enough. And sometimes God tells us to do things because he said so. Well, I'll love people when I feel like loving them. Well, you're going to be waiting a long time. You act in anticipation of the feelings. And the more you pray for and care for and love somebody actively, the feelings will come. It's the same thing in marriage. I'm going to use that example and keep going. You start acting like you love that person, those feelings will return. Well, I can't do that because then it'd be hypocritical. No, you made a vow. You made a promise. So stand on that. Same thing in the church. You love Jesus Christ, and Christ lives in that person that you're talking to. So you can love them. Sometimes you've got to act in defiance of your feelings. Oh, this guy. Oh, her. Oh, why did I have to get settled with her? Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. <laughs> well, I don't want to be a hypocrite. No, you don't want to be a jerk either. Do you think Jesus was just thrilled every single time he saw this, some person coming up to him? Jesus was a man. But Jesus loved that person the way they needed to be loved every time. And that's what we ought to do. So, y'all, get to know the people in this room. Find the, out who they are, their hopes, their regrets. Find out their personalities, what's good, what's bad. That's usually how it works. You either learn the bad side of somebody's personality or the good side first. And then the longer you get to know them, either the good side finally comes out and you go, oh, now I get it. Or the bad side comes out and goes, oh, you're not perfect. <laughs> but you've got to determine that you're going to love them deeply. And you know, most of us are at our best when we love each other. We've got all kinds of problems, but when you're loving somebody else, all that stuff just kind of falls away because you're loving somebody else. It keeps you from focusing on yourself and making a pet out of your own dysfunction. Don't we do that? Here's my problems and my needs. Who wants to help me? Who wants to babysit my dog? You know, who wants to come help me move? It's like, these are, this is my dysfunction and somebody needs to help me with it. How about you lay that aside and start loving somebody else? And then along the way, you're going to see all that stuff get worked out. This also means opening up yourself to love from other people. That's what I have a problem with. People come in and they want to be nice to me, and I go, what's your angle, pal? What do you want? What do you want from me, man? Showing sincerity and honesty. It also means that you have got to, as the proverb says, he who desires to have friends must first show himself to be what? Friendly. Friendly. If you're going to come in, I'm not singling anybody out. If you're going to come into church, you know, I come to everything and nobody talks to me. Well, if you're sitting over there like this, big old scowl on your face. Anytime somebody steps up, you kind of move away. It's like, well, who wants to talk to that? Well, I'm just in a lot of pain. Okay, well, you know what? You're not doing what the Bible says, which is to show yourself friendly first. Some people make it miserable for other people who try to love them. Well, I'm testing them to see if they really care. What is that all about? Don't do that. Jesus didn't do that for you. Jesus took the initiative and loved you while you were still a sinner. So let's step out. Let's learn to love one another. And all of that, not just so that we can have a nice, happy feeling around here, but so that we can build each other up in those afflictions. You know those sufferings that we were talking about that build you up and make you more like Christ? You can do that as a team. You don't have to do it by yourself. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So he says, God comforts us 
so that we can go comfort each other. So that as God is working out that sanctification process in every person, you can come along and by the Spirit of God, help them along. Paul said, I want to see you and I want to supply what is lacking in your faith. This is that word edification. Edification is like the word edifice. It's a building. It means to build each other up. This is what the church is to be. We build each other up so that when trials come, we're ready because we've got a team around us that has built us up. And that as we're going through them, we've got a team there to hold us to what we've committed to do and to help us get through it. We have a responsibility to one another to love each other that way and to comfort one another in affliction. Now listen, shallow friendships aren't going to cut it when it comes to that kind of thing. If you don't have anybody here or anybody, period, that you can tell the hardest things you're going through, you're going to have to walk through it alone. And that you say, well, that takes time. Yeah, so you better get on it. <laughs> better get started. Because you don't know when the evil day is coming. You cultivate those friendships and you love one another and you're able to walk through it together. There's a tough love aspect to this too because sometimes we're going through a trial. We can't see what's lacking, as Paul says. But the people around us can. And we tell each other, you know, I really think you got to lay off of this. I really think you got to change that. That can be a dangerous thing. <laughs> it's like trying to help a wounded animal. You know, that dog has, has never done anything but smile at you, but now that his paw's been all cut up, you try to touch him and he's snarling and snapping at you. You ever had that happen before? Hurt people can be like that too, where you're trying to help them and tell them what they need, and they're like, no, I'm not going to listen to that. You don't, you're not loving me well. You should just be there to comfort me and take care of me. So I, I, I am here, and I am comforting you, and I am loving you. But you also need to know that this is what you need to let go of. That's what's hurting you. That's the hot thing that you won't let go that's burning your hand. Like the story of the raccoon that you, I've heard it with raccoons and monkeys, so pick your animal, who puts its hand in the, in the trap and holds on to the shiny thing and won't let it go, and then you don't even have to do anything to the animal because it's stuck and it won't let go of that. We need to be that for each other to go, let go, stop it. And you know, sometimes you've got to pry the fingers off. No, now you can walk away. We have a responsibility to do that. Sometimes it's a painful thing. But we never do that out of bitterness. There are some people that just walk into church rubbing their hands saying, who can I rebuke today? I, I, I got fired up. I was listening to Leonard Ravenhill on the way to church this morning, and he lit my fire, so i got to light somebody else up. Let's see. You're going through a rough time. Well, you know what your problem is? Is that how Jesus did things? No way. Jesus loved people. There are even times where you're like, Jesus, shouldn't you have said more? And he's like, nah, they get it. You need to have a loving heart. Desiring each other to succeed. Desiring to see Christ formed in that person. 2020 has been a tough year. And I'll say for the people that are in this church who have thrown themselves into the fellowship and the friendship here and given themselves over to that, those are the ones that seem to be doing the best. Because we've got one another to build each other up and walk through that. Love one another enough to edify one another. Paul's like, I sent Timothy to check on you, and I can't wait to get there in person so that I can supply what is lacking. I want to help you finish this out. That's part of what the rest of this letter is going to be about. And maybe that's what each of us need. You look at a person, and maybe you've been watching them for a long time, and you're like, you know, I think that this is what they need, but I'm not going to be that guy and just always inserting myself into somebody's life. But when they're going through some painful thing, that might be the time for you to say what the Lord has given you. And say, hey, this is what I think. This is what you need. Paul's going to do some of that in the rest of this book. 
But let's read verses 11 through 13 to the end here. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now these verses, you probably can tell, it's kind of a wrap up of this first big section. There have been a couple minor divisions at the beginning, but chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 5 are kind of different big sections. You've got the encouragement at the beginning and the instruction towards the end. Now, the authors are going to use three what are called here optative verbs. So they have indicative verbs. You have infinitives. These are called optatives. The words there direct, increase, and abound. It's a very rare form in Greek. So it, it's interesting to me because it's a very formal and it, it's not something that Paul uses often, which means we might have some of Silas's influence here. You don't know that for sure, but it's just cool to see. But it's, it's the wish form. It's the may God or may it be or let it be. And this is what he's saying. These three things, direct, increase, and abound. This is a prayer, which makes that verse 11 very significant because he's offering up a prayer or a blessing, a benediction, and he includes the Lord Jesus in that. Paul is praying to Jesus and calling him Lord. That's significant. And he's also believing that Jesus Christ can do these things, that Jesus can direct their paths and increase their love and cause it to abound and establish them in holiness. Now, this is important because this was the, the second or first letter that Paul wrote in the New Testament. And lots of folks want to say, the early church did not believe that Jesus was God. Well, you've got these first epistles here that show very clearly they did. He's calling him Lord. Now, that word Lord, you know, is a rather significant one in Scripture. So you all knew that and believe that, but I always love to give you those little apologetic notes that you know, say, well, you know, it was always in the, in the later letters. No, it's right here in the first one or the second one. I think it's the second one, but you get the idea. And now this first thing that he prays for is that that satanic blockade would be broken, that he would direct our way to you. And he wants to be able to return to Thessalonica. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 20, when Paul is going the rounds and taking up that collection, we know that he was able to get back, but it doesn't tell us exactly when that was. But Aristarchus would travel with him a lot after that, who was a Thessalonian. But there are two other things that they pray for here. And we can look at these as the hopeful effects of suffering. If you're going to go through pain in life, these are the two things you should hope get formed in you. This is what you hope should happen by the time it's all over. This is what Paul said he was hoping for the Thessalonians, and I hope it's true for us too. First of all, he says to increase and abound in love. We just discussed that. Sincere affection leading to action for one another. It's not just action. You can do something nice for somebody and have no love in your heart. You also can have really nice feelings for somebody and never do anything about it, which is like what kind of love you call that. But not just for one another, do you see, but for all even for their persecutors, even for the lost, even for the people they did not know. He says you should have love for all of them. It's easy to love one another sometimes, but it can be hard to love other people, especially in days like today where we're, everyone is lined up against one another. It's, it's, everything is teamed. It's not just let's talk about it, let's be a, a community. It's you're either over here or you're over there. But you know what Jesus told us in Luke 6, 27 and 28? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. 
That's like the first lesson you remember learning of what Jesus said, huh? And it's still like the hardest one to obey. But we've got to be insistent upon obeying these things. That can be tough where we, we've got a, a critical mass of Bible knowledge and we're, we're in the mainstream of that, but we feel like knowing the Bible and being in church and having the right doctrine excuses us from obeying these really basic things that Jesus told us. A Christian isn't somebody with great doctrine. A Christian is someone who loves their enemies, who prays for those who abuse them, who do good to those who hate you. Your neighbor that's always giving you trouble and hollering at you, and screaming at you, and saying foul things about you. When they show up to your house, and they're the ones in need, you do good to them. You read online about all these people hating and cursing Christians, and even persecuting Christians, and you get on your knees, and you don't just pray for the Christians, you pray for the persecutors. Lord, may that man be like Paul, who was violent towards the church, but became an apostle of Jesus Christ. Suffering should produce love, not bitterness. Well, I went through it, and I'm still following Jesus, but I'm never going to get fooled like that again. That's not right. Is that what Jesus did? Is Jesus going to show back at his second coming and say, y'all put me on the cross, so I'm not loving any of you? <laughs> of course not. Suffering should produce kindness, not hate. You know, sometimes if we suffer, even, even things that have nothing to do with anybody else, but they make us hateful people. It should produce pity, not prejudice. When you've gone through pain, especially self-inflicted sinful pain, and you look at somebody else doing the same thing to other people, you should have pity for them. Not be like, ah, I know what you're like because I used to be like that. I don't want anything to do with you. How about, I used to be like that, and I was brought out of it by the sovereign grace of God. Let me help you. Christ's suffering was a demonstration of love, and yours should be too. But the second wish there was for them to be established, blameless in holiness. When Jesus Christ returns. Yet another reference to the return of Jesus. They're all in these Thessalonian epistles. And in a few weeks, we're going to be spending a lot of time discussing what it has to teach us. But he's saying, I pray that you will be holy and blameless when Christ returns. When you are first saved, it's what we call in Scripture justification. It's that moment of conversion where you have been regenerated and filled with the Spirit of God. You're a believer now. And we just discussed today that lifelong process of sanctification where you become more like Jesus. And we especially focused on that suffering aspect today, but there's more aspects to it. And in the end, when you stand before God, that process will be completed in an instant, which we call glorification. I love talking about glorification. He's saying, I'm praying that that work you're going through right now, that suffering that is causing you to grow, I pray it will continue so that when you stand before Christ, it is done. And you are blameless, faultless before the throne. It is God who will finish that. Isn't that nice to know? Philippians 1.6 says that God will complete the good work that he began in you. You know, I said this last week, but I'll say it again. We strive to be righteous. We should. But we also can remember when we've messed up real bad, say, this is, this is God's work. God is going to work this out. God is going to finish me off. He's able to make us stand on that final day, and that's what we pray for. It's also why we're told not to judge other believers, because God is able to make him stand on that day. Say, you're going through the same process, pal. Just because it looks different than him, don't be looking down your nose towards somebody else. Every time you suffer, you're being prepared for that final glorification. So you should not resist that process. You should look at that suffering as, okay, this is another chance for me to be made more like Jesus. And that when I stand before him, I'll look back on that and say, that was, that was needed. 
You don't want the return of Christ to be a fearful thing for you, do you? And every time Jesus Christ tried to teach you something or change something in you, you resisted it and fought it. 1 John 2.28 says, Little children, abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Not shrink from him in shame at his coming. When I come home, usually, all three of my kids come running to the door, Daddy's home. When they don't do that, I get suspicious. What's broken and who broke it? <laughs> and I walk around and I say, where's Colton? Uh, he's hiding behind the couch. Why? What'd you do, Colton? I don't know. That's not what you want the return of Jesus to be. Like, oh, no, please. Oh, not today. Why was I doing that? Oh, Lord. And you get in the crowd in heaven. You're trying to, like, you know, avoid his eyes. Now, Jesus is going to come and he's going to restore you and he's going to wipe away every tear from your eye. But John and, and Paul are writing here like, hey, don't you want to be like, yes, when Jesus comes back? I'm ready, Lord. Suffering can cause you to shed that skin, to leave that old man behind and ditch those old habits and become who God always intended you to be. And that's what Paul was praying for. And that's where we end today with the anticipation of the return of Jesus that someday he shall return, like Douglas MacArthur we said at the beginning, right? He'll be back. In the meantime, though, we have this life to live. And it's a hard life. It's a painful life. And that suffering can either make you or break you. And that is up to you in a lot of ways. Christ wants to use your suffering to make you more like Jesus and sanctify you. Satan wants to use your suffering to prove that you are nothing more than seeds sown among thorns or among stones. So love one another. Help one another to grow in holiness. We don't have to do that on our own. We have a team. Our king is coming back and I want him to find us ready to go.